We are in Colossians chapter 1. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14 this morning is our main text. Um, but right up here, one of the things that I really love about our, our new location and through our replant and, and where we are physically situated and located is that we have no shortage of food opportunities after church is over with, right? I mean, you can just, like, there is food everywhere. When you walk out of church on, on Sunday mornings, man, it's like, well, and I know, sometimes it's, you walk out of church on Sunday afternoons. I get it, all right? Um, but, uh, but you walk out, and there's just this wafting of all kinds of different flavors of, of foods and aromas and everything. But kind of have, have uh, two bags up here this morning from two of our, uh, two of our, uh, our food-offering neighbors, I guess you would say, two restaurants here on the Nicholasville Road Corridor. Uh, we got over here. Does everybody recognize this logo and what this is? Everybody shout it out. What is this? Cane's Chicken, baby. That's good stuff, right? And then over here, we got, if you want to go a little bit more upscale and you want to dig a little deeper into your pockets um, and also probably extend your your uh, your waistline a little bit more, we got this over here. What is this? All right, Cheesecake Factory. You're thinking, what in the world do chicken and cheesecake have to do uh, with the book of Colossians? Well, I'm glad you're here today to find that out, all right? Got two, two things up here. You know that when you see a bag like this, you know that the contents are going to be some sort of food, right? Um, now, if I were to say that both of these bags were full of meals from that restaurant, and I were to say that lunch was on me today, and all you had to do to get that meal was to just pick one of the bags and tell me what you thought, what meal you thought was in that bag, all right? Which one would you choose? Everybody would choose canes. Why in the world would you choose canes? Because you know what's in this bag. All you have, the only option you have in this bag is going to be lovely, delicious, golden fried, perfectly seasoned chicken tenders, right? That's it. All right. Chick uh, I was getting ready to say Chick-fil-A. We love Chick-fil-A too, right? You know, that's, that's the chicken that's going to be at the marriage supper of the lamb. But canes is pretty good too, right? All right. Because Cain's, their whole, their whole motto is one love, man. They're about one thing. They're about you. The only decision you have to make when you walk into Cain's is, how many tenders do I want with my fries, my coleslaw, and my delicious Texas toast? That's all you have to worry about, right? That's it. That's the only decision you have to make. Now, you walk into Cheesecake Factory over here, and I'm not knocking Cheesecake Factory. It's good. But have you ever seen a Cheesecake Factory menu before? That thing is thicker than a New York City phone book. All right, phone books are those things that they used to print out for our single. They're those things they used to print out, and uh, you know, if you needed to find a number, you didn't have contact list on your phone, you'd open it up and look up the name and stuff. Real thick things, man. Now they're they still make them, but they're not. <laughs> anyway, so you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm now I'm lost. I've got a degenerational translation there. So, but seriously, you could. There are like 1.5 million menu items. On the menu at Chick at, at Cheesecake Factory. I'm just getting ready to say Chick Fil A again. Um, at Cheesecake Factory, right? No, that's just me because they're closed today anyway. Stop saying it. Um, so you could eat every meal of your life for a hundred years at Cheesecake Factory, and you would never eat the same meal twice. For a guy like me, who I've already talked about my indecisiveness when it comes to my food options, for a guy like me, this right here is equivalent to waterboarding. Okay, it is torture for me to do that. I'm much happier going over Kings where I say, hey, just give me some chicken and let's 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 hit the road. Okay? 
Um, when it comes to restaurants, a lot of people have followed the idea that in order to get in order to get patrons, in order to get customers, we've got to make sure that we try to satisfy an offer to a long a, a large palette of tastes. Because they go by the idea that if I have higher vo volume of people coming through, my business will be more successful. So Cheesecake Factory is like the ultimate volume buying business model when it comes to restaurants. Then you have specialty places like King's where they say, you know what, what we're going to do, we're going to build our business model on the idea and on the, on the notion that at some point in your life, everyone is going to come to a place where they do not just want, but they need chicken tenders in their life. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to make the best chicken tender that is possible. We're going to pair it with the best sauce that is possible. Can I get a witness? Right? And we're going to pair with the best Texas toast possible. And when people are thinking, I want tenders, they're thinking, I want canes. It's one love. And that's it. That's what I want. When you walk into canes, you know what you're getting. But Cheesecake Factory is like, no, I've got some volume. Because they have this idea of, of this. is If you're going to eat, you're going to come here and we're going to offer you what. You don't even have to know what you want before you come. We're going to have anything that you want. Um, they want to appeal to as many people as they can. They, what Cain says is, all we know is chicken, all we need is chicken, all you're going to want when you come here is chicken. And today we're beginning that sermon series through the book of Colossians, Paul's letter to the Colossian believers. Most of the people at this time when Paul was writing, uh, when he's writing to the Colossian believers, they, were, they trusted in Christ. Christ was their savior. Christ was the object of their worship. But there was a, a new flavor of religion and a new flavor of ideology that was beginning to pop up known as syncretism. Most of the time when Paul wrote a letter to a church, and that's what the majority of the New Testament, uh, the New Testament after you get past the book of Acts, the majority of the New Testament becomes letters that are written to believers and to, uh, and to churches there. And Paul is doing a couple of things in these letters. He writes to commend them for the good things that they do. And he writes to encourage them to continue doing good and faithful things for the Lord. But then he also writes to address certain crises that are going on in the churches. And geographically, based on where those churches were located, the crises could have been different. But just about every time, as you look at a crisis within the church and a crisis that Paul is addressing, he's addressing a crisis of faith and a crisis of theology. Because at this time in the church, they didn't have the completed work of Scripture. Scripture, as far as the New Testament was concerned, was still being written. Worship services looked a lot different than they do now. They were not as formal and as orderly as they are now. You would have people that would get up and they would say, hey, I got a revelation from God, and this is what God had said to me. And then, so then they would have to decide, and they would have to have people that had discerning of the spirits that would be able to discern whether this was right, whether it lined up with the Scripture they did have, and all kinds of different things go on. A little bit different today because we have the Word of God and we can check what is said and whether it is theologically accurate by the truth of God's Word. But there's all kinds of things going on. And Colossae was kind of a, it wasn't a real big city. Colossae was planted out of the church at Ephesus. Paul never actually went to Colossae. He wasn't involved in planting the church there. But there was a name, there was a man by the name of Epaphras who had come out of the church at Ephesus there. And he had gone into three places. He'd gone into Laodicea, he'd gone into Colossae, and he'd gone into Hierapolis, which were three surrounding kind of suburb towns of Ephesus, and planted these churches. But the other thing that had happened is this big hub there, a lot of people began to kind of, began to kind of live there that weren't really well versed in Scripture. There weren't a lot of Jewish believers there at that time. And so they hadn't, 
Christ was the completion of the law. There were a lot of pagans. There were a lot of people who grew up in that Gentile uh, mythological worship type of thing, worshiping Zeus and worshiping Aphrodite and all of these different, different things. And so this idea known as syncretism began to come up. And for lack of a better word, it was Cheesecake Factory faith. You want a little bit of paganism with your, with your Jesus? That's all right. We can throw a little bit of paganism in there. You want a little bit of Jewish ideology? You want a bit of legalism? You can have that too. You want to have a little bit of agnosticism? That's fine. You can have that as well. Because it's not so, it doesn't matter so much what you have faith in or who you have faith in. It's just that you have faith. So they begin to have faith in faith. Well, folks, when you look at scripture, faith in faith doesn't save us. Just having, it's like, I'm in love with love. That, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. It sounds good, and it, it's, it looks good on a t-shirt, but it doesn't really make a whole, lot of, a whole lot of sense practically, right? And so they basically had come to this cheesecake factory faith. Well, Paul writes this letter to say, look, syncretism is dangerous. Syncretism pulls us away from the one thing that matters when it comes to salvation, and that is Jesus Christ. Syncretism says, okay, you can have Jesus, but let's make sure that we add this and we add that. And you make sure you cover all the bases. And I've talked to people like that today. Look, folks, this was 2,000 years ago, but today we're still just as syncretistic in our approach, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I went to church and I, I believe in Jesus, but, you know, what if the Buddhists are right? What if, the, you know, what if, all, of the, what if all these other things are right? So I want to have a wide open view of all the different faiths that are out there and then make my decision. The problem when we do that, the problem when we hold up every faith and everything as being equal in importance, we diminish the one thing that truly is, and that is Jesus Christ. And so Paul doesn't basically come out and tell these people, look, you all are crazy, and when the, when the heretics come in, because that's what basically he says there, he says they're heretics, they're preaching heresy against Christ. When the heretics come in, you know, meet them with the brass knuckles out on the church porch and just beat them down, no, he just basically says, you don't need to know every false philosophy. All you need to do is buckle down and double down on the one true God, Jesus Christ. Because through Jesus, everything else falls into place. And that's really the goal. And that's what kind of titled the series is basically Christ above all. And that's the question I want to wrestle with and deal with as we walk through this book together. As a church, if you're married, as your home and you have, you have kids, is your parenting based upon Jesus Christ? Is your marriage centered on Jesus Christ? Is Christ preeminent? Not just in the church. But in your life, in your career, in your marriage, in your entertainment, in your hobbies, in all of that thing, is Christ preeminent? What place does Jesus have in our lives today? Because if he doesn't have the preeminent spot, things begin to get, things begin to get skewed. So as he addresses this theological fact, Jesus, uh, basically what that word preeminent means is above all, that Christ is that Christ is above all, that Christ is enough, that Christ is all we need in the church. And he says that Christ is preeminent in five different things. So we're going to be looking at that through the series. That Christ is preeminent, number one, in the gospel message. That you cannot preach the gospel without Jesus Christ in it. And that you can't add to the gospel and add something else to the gospel because the gospel is Jesus. He says that Jesus is preeminent in redemption. That it's only through the blood of Christ that we can have salvation. He says that Jesus Christ is preeminent in creation. He said that Jesus is preeminent or should be preeminent in the church. And that Jesus is preeminent in our personal lives and our personal ministries as well. Paul's writing this about 60 AD, the first time that he's in prison um, in Rome. 
And so he, like I said, he never had a chance to go to Colossae, but he had heard about the good things that were going on there. And he wanted to make sure that the good things get better. And the only way the good things get better is when you have Jesus and you hold fast to Jesus. That over time, we don't have to add to, we don't have to diminish, we don't have to reinvent. We have to go back and, and just fall back on Jesus Christ over and over and over and over again. He writes this book about the same time that he writes the book of Ephesians too. Ephesians, he writes from a different perspective, but it's the same thing. He writes about ch the church functioning as the body of Christ under the headship of Christ. But in Colossians, he writes about Jesus Christ as being the head of the body. And we focus on the head. And so many scholars believe too that Colossians is the... Uh, is the, the finest work, the finest book that Paul ever wrote. That it's the most effective, and that if you took away all the other, if you said, hey, we have to get rid of all of Paul's books except one, hold on to the book of Colossians. And so here's the big idea that we're looking at for this series and this message today, pretty much. In a culture that is changing, we can't deny that it's changing. You may be mad that it's changing, you may be happy that it's changing, you may be indifferent to the fact that it is changing, but we live in an American culture that is changing. And there's a temptation that as culture changes, churches, families, and everybody begins to think, what changes do I need to make or do we need to make to adapt to this change? Was well, the Church of Jesus Christ, the reason that we have been around since Jesus instituted and the reason that the Bible says the church will be around until he returns is because Jesus remains preeminent in the church. That as cultures may change, as winds may blow, as cultures may be different from country to country, if you keep Jesus the main thing, it becomes universally translated across cultures. But if you base your church off of cultural mores and cultural values, and you begin to say, that's what makes us the church, that gets us in trouble. So Jesus must be the foundation. Jesus must be the center. So the big idea is simply this, that Christ must be preeminent in order for the church to be relevant. So, because here's the thing. When you think Cheesecake Factory, you can think any number of things. But when you think canes, you think chicken. That's, that's just about it. Unless you're like a vegetarian or a vegan, and then you just need to get saved and, and move on anyway, right? And here's the thing. When people think church, they need to think Jesus. I wonder sometimes when people think grace, what, what do they think? And it's wonderful if they think, hey, man, those are some nice people over there. Hey, they've got, you know, they've got a really cool space that they worship in. Hey, there's some good things going on over there. But if, if, if Jesus doesn't become like the first thing that people think of, and the first thing that people begin to reckon with when they think about the church, we're not doing our job as the church. We're just not. So let's look at four important results of Christ being preeminent this morning, and then we'll go to lunch. And I know that most people are going to go to one of two places today, probably. Right, all right. First of all, when Christ is preeminent in the church, one of the results of his, of his preeminence is that we as believers will find our identity. That we as believers will find our identity. Look at what it says again in verses 1 and 2. He's, he notes, notes who the writer is. It's Paul, an apostle of who? Jesus Christ. He says, I am Paul and I'm identifying myself because again, they heard of Paul, but they hadn't heard from Paul yet directly. So Paul says this, he says, look, I'm an apostle. And an apostle at that time, there's not apostles walking around today because to be an apostle, you had to physically spend time in the presence of Jesus Christ. Paul, he said, well, Paul didn't really spend time in the presence of Jesus Christ. His Damascus Road experience was considered to be his apostolic credential, all 
All right, and so he was labeled as an apostle because of that. He says, I'm an apostle, but his next identification is what's most important. I'm an apostle of who? Of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I am identified by Jesus Christ. That's my identity. And then move on in what he says this. He says, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren that are, say this next phrase with me, in Christ. So he's writing to the people in Colossians and he says, I, Paul, am in Christ. And you, Church of Colossae, you are in Christ as well. That is our identity. We're both identified by the same thing. And then he says, grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In there we see the result of our identification is that we have grace in our lives and that we have peace in our lives as well. That we're at peace with God because we are in God and we are in Jesus. Now skip down to verse number 14, the last verse that we read of our text. In verse number 14 says, in whom, speaking of Jesus still, we have redemption through his blood and even the forgiveness of his sins. So Paul is talking about not only what unifies them, but also what, what also blesses them. Why are we so lucky? Why are we so fortunate to be the church? It's because of this right here. In Jesus Christ, we have redemption and we have forgiveness of our sins. You see, we try to make breaks with people. We, we fall out with people because of the wrongs that they do to us or the wrong views they may have or they say something, they post something wrong on, on Facebook or Twitter or something like that. It's all of a sudden, well, I've had a falling out with that person. I'm done with them. Here's what Paul is saying. Because of our identity in Christ as believers, we can't be done with each other. Our forgiveness in Christ overcomes all of our differences that we may have in our sin. And so Paul's entire identity is wrapped up in Christ in order, it, it, like I said, he's an apostle, but the biggest identification he has is that I'm in Jesus. And that tells something to the church as well, is that before Christ, we're all the same. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, meaning that we are all sinners in need of a Savior. It doesn't matter what position you may hold in a church. It doesn't matter if it's your first time or if you've been here every single day since the doors have been opened in the church. Doesn't matter what position we may have in the church, our position before Christ is exactly the same. We are in Christ, we are redeemed, we are forgiven, and we are eternally blessed because of that. That's my identity. And we all try to break up in different camps all over the place sometimes. But our identity is in Christ. Any differences we may have are overcome by the bond that we have in the preeminence of the Son, Jesus Christ. He said this, Paul didn't know these particular believers. He never went to Colossae, but because they were faithful, as it says in verse number three, because they were faithful to the same Savior as he was, he had a burning in his heart that caused him to pray, not ceasing to pray for the believers at Colossae. This is a practical question that we need to have as, as, as a church. As Graceway Baptist Church, do we have a burning desire in our heart to pray for other churches in our city and around the world? that they would be effective in the gospel ministry as well. Because too often we can get real competitive. We can be like those restaurants saying, hey, we need to get as many patrons as we can in here, so we need to make sure we got better programs in the church down the street. That we got better things to offer, we got a better preacher than the guy down, than, than the other church down the street. And that's gonna make us stand out above all the other churches and more people will come here. Of course, we're not in the business of building a crowd, we're in the business of seeing lives change through the power of Jesus Christ. And if other churches down the street are in that same business, we are in it together. 
Because why? Because our identity is in Jesus Christ. This seems today, you know it just as well as I know, everybody's got an identity crisis. Everybody's struggling over their identity. Sexual identity, gender identity, political identity, denominational identity, who you're going to cheer for on Sunday morning or on Sunday afternoon when football's being played. Everybody's just always in this identity crisis. And the question a lot of people say is, what do you identify with? And what we're saying is, what agenda, what message, what value system do I identify with? What we're really saying is, here's this list of values. I want to get on board with that. That's not what, that's not what Paul is talking about here. Paul is talking about the fact that our identity is in Jesus Christ. And only when we come to him and make him preeminent do we find what our identity truly is. Everybody's trying to find out, well, where do I stand? Where do I stand? Where do I stand? It reminds me of that old hymn. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And that's the vernacular we use in our culture today, right? I identify with this, and I identify with that. It's that sinking sand. It's that shifting sand. It's just back and forth, back and forth. Here's why it's important that Christ is preeminent, because when we stand on Jesus and we stand in Jesus, the sand doesn't shift because he's the solid rock. <clears throat> Everyone has this idea. I listened to a radio show the other day of two guys talking about whether the term evangelical means the same thing that it used to mean within our culture today. And this is what happens when we settle for identifying with man-made labels and man-made agendas rather than identifying in the identity of the God who made man. We get really confused about who we are and what we're about. And so what that leaves is for churches to say, well, how are we going to stay relevant in a changing culture? The same way Christ was relevant in the Colossian culture. They worshiped Jesus. They made Jesus number one. When we begin to lose our sight, we begin to be like Peter. I'm helping in the, in the, the kids' Sunday school class with Stacy, and our lesson today was on Peter walking on the water. Well, he didn't walk on the water. He kind of fell through the water. Why did he fall through the water, remember? Because he took his eyes off Christ. The preeminence of Christ tells us, keep your eyes on Jesus and God will use you to do amazing things for his glory. But if we take it off, we lose our identity, we start saying, well, I identify with this. And we do that so we can stay relevant. Our relevance is found in Jesus Christ. And that's the next result of Christ's preeminence, is that the gospel will have power. And the gospel will remain true when Christ is preeminent. That we can't add to the gospel. We can't take away from the gospel. The gospel is Jesus crucified, risen, and coming again. That's the gospel. That we're sinners, that we were dead in our sins, that Jesus is not a sinner, that he is perfect, and he is the sacrifice for sin, and that he came so that we could have eternal life. Look at verses 3 through 8. Well, actually, let's, let's pick up verse 4. Paul says this, I pray for you always because since I've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have to all the believers, or to all the saints, and for the hope that is laid up for you in heaven, where you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. First of all, what we see here is the gospel will have some powerful, what does a powerful gospel look like? A powerful gospel will have some powerful effects. This is what was happening to Colossae. Because they were focused on Jesus and because he was preeminent, their love for one another was pure. Their love for one another was unadulterated, and there was nothing that was able to tear that love down. They loved one another. Not only did they love one another, but they loved those that were outside of their church as well. They loved people that didn't know Christ because they realized their greatest need was Jesus. 
Their greatest identity as the Colossian believers was that they were identified with Christ and they believed and believed with their whole heart, which by the way, we need to believe today too, is that the only way people become complete is to come to Christ. The only way people find their identity and find their purpose is to come to Jesus Christ. The gospel caused them to love like Jesus did. Look at verse, uh, look at verse number six, which has come, the, the truth of the gospel that has come to you, and it is in all of the world, and it brings forth fruit. What's the fruit of the gospel? Salvation of souls. The fruit of the gospel is salvation of souls. And it does in you since the day that you heard of it and knew the grace of God and truth. And you learned this of Epaphras, our fellow servant who is for you a faithful minister of Christ. And he also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. So an evidence of the gospel having power in a church is when a church is full of the love of Christ. That they love one another and that they love those that are around the church as well. And I want to ask a, a probing question this morning, and this is what, as you go to your life groups tonight, this is what I would really love for our life groups to drill down on is, What does our church need to do to express the love of Christ? What do we need in order to express? And do we express the love of Christ in our church to all the saints, or do we just pick and choose based on who we identify with? How does that look? Well, ageism. Well, I identify with that person because they're a little bit older. Genderism. I identify with this because, because we, we are the same gender. I identify with this because I, you know, we, we agree like this politically. Listen, what the Bible is telling us is that when Christ is preeminent, all of those divisions and all of those camps begin to melt away and we become the body of Christ. The body of Christ. The gospel caused them to love like Christ. The gospel, in verse number five, gave them hope to see Jesus. He says, I know that you have a hope that you are one day going to be in heaven. Realizing that this life is not just about getting through life and living my best life now. This life is about preparing for the best life that is yet ahead. The life that will never end in heaven. Let me ask you, what is the greatest part of heaven to you? The longer I live, the more people that are dear to me no longer live here, but they live there. And so heaven becomes sweeter. And then there's that phrase that heaven becomes sweeter as we lose people in this life. And it does. But the greatest aspect of heaven is that we will be in the presence of Jesus, the preeminent one here in the church. We can't lose sight of that. And that's what Paul was telling the Colossians. The greatest hope of heaven is Jesus Christ. And that the gospel also, when it is powerful, it will invite the world to Jesus Christ. Just like when Jesus says, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. When we are living and preaching a gospel that is empowered by Jesus, that message goes forth. Come to Jesus and find hope and rest and peace and love like you've never known. That's the message of the church. Secretism of the early days evolved and later became known as Gnosticism. It comes from the Greek word gnosos, meaning to know. Gnosticism basically says this, that uh, you, you can be saved, you can trust Jesus, but then also you need to get some messages from angels and you can communicate on a higher level and get special revelations and all this stuff. Basically what Gnosticism says is there's more to it than Christ. Call me a simple person, but Jesus is enough. And that's what Paul was saying here. Call me a simple person, but Jesus is enough. You see, because you take chicken tenders off the menu at Chick-fil-A, and there's a few upset kids when they look at the kids' menu. You take chicken tenders off the menu at Cane's, and they don't open the doors tomorrow. You see how that relates to the church? 
You take Jesus off the menu of church, what are we anymore? See, the word church means a called out assembly to propagate the gospel of Christ. If we take Jesus off, or if we say, hey, yeah, we got, we got Jesus there, but we got awesome, we got some of this, we got this, we got a little bit of that, and oh, you want fudge on that? Yeah, we can put all, if we, our job is not to make Christ more powerful, okay? Our job is to make Christ more famous and more available. I'm just going to be quiet for a minute, let that sink in. Our job is to make Christ available to all. If you take Christ out of the gospel, you delete the gospel with something other than Jesus, the gospel then becomes pointless. Jesus cannot just be one of the few or one of the many things that the church offers. The church exists because of Christ. He's our foundation. He's our cornerstone. He's our lifeblood. He's the subject of the gospel. He's the hope of the gospel, and he's the point of every sermon preached. He must be. He needs to be. He has to be. We're not saved, again, by having faith in faith. We're not saved just by, oh, I have faith, so I'm saved. Well, what do you have faith in? What do you have faith in? Who do you, and it's not a question of what do you have faith in, but who do you have faith in? We're not saved by having faith in a doctrine. We're not saved by having faith in a church. You're not saved by having faith and believing just what your Sunday school teacher says. You're saved because you come to Jesus Christ and say, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins, and I place my faith and my trust in you and in you alone to be the application of grace and forgiveness over my sin-sick soul. I can't do a thing to earn salvation. I need you. And I trust in Jesus. Again, when Christ is all about I stand, all other ground is sinking his hand. So Christ is preeminent in the church. We have an identity. We also have a gospel that has power and remains powerful. And then we also see that when Christ is preeminent in the church, we find that our lives take on a whole new meaning than what we thought they did. In verses 9 through 11, Paul says this, For this cause also, since the day we heard of your hope in the gospel, we don't cease to pray for you. And we say, I'm praying that you will remain hopeful in the gospel and you won't be affected by all of this other stuff that's going on. Keep your eyes on Jesus. We desire that you will be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you might walk worthy of the Lord into all pleasing, fruitful in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened in all or with all of his mind, according to his glorious power to all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. Here Paul begins to lay out what life is really about. What really adds depth and substance to our lives. What adds depth and substance to our lives is not the stuff that we can acquire. It's not the places that we can go. But the depth of the relationship I can have with my creator. He says what makes life worth living is knowing who gave me life to begin with. What makes life worth living is knowing that this life is not the end. Because folks, if this life is the end, what a miserable existence. What a miserable, yeah, we may have some fun here. But understand this, this is not all life is about. Paul begins to lay out what life is really about. And the idea that the syncretists were saying, and the Gnostics were saying, was that until you received a higher knowledge, higher than what just salvation in Christ would give to you, then you weren't truly fulfilled in your life. 
So Paul combats that not by saying, all right, I've got to find every way possible that I can to try to argue about this. No, he just says this, look, I'm not affected by all your higher knowledge because I double down on Christ. And as I do that, I find all the knowledge that I need. He says that a life fulfilled is a life that is fulfilled in a deep, intimate relationship with Christ. And through that, you find several things. And if you have space there on your notes or if you want to jot these down in your Bible, here are the things right here from this text that we find that is truly fulfilling in life. He says we have purpose in our life through Christ, that we will be filled with the knowledge of his will. Many people say, what am I going to do tomorrow? What am I going to do with my life? If you rest in Christ, and Christ is preeminent in your life, there is a promise. He will fill you with the knowledge of his will for your life. You won't have to worry about where to go, what to do. Jesus will guide you. If, if Christ is preeminent, you will have truth in your life as well. He saw God you in all wisdom and in all spiritual understanding. We live in a day of information. You can push a button and find information on anything you want. But did you know this? I just found this out the other day. Not everything on the internet is true. Do you know that? You can Google stuff, and, and, and stuff will come up on Google, and it'll be, it's not true. Do you know that? You know what I found out, too? And I don't want to offend anybody, all right? Just, just, there are people today, like, it's 2019, right? There are people today that legitimately believe that the earth is still flat. Okay, and I'm not making fun, I'm just saying. There's all kinds of different ideas out there. If you want to believe something, you can find it. There is a Star Wars religion that is registered in the United States of America as an official church. You know what I mean? This one's talking about secrets. This one's talking about right over here at Cheesecake Factory, baby. We need to get back to that one love. That one love. So we live in confusion, and here's what he says. You want to fulfill life? You need to find truth, and the truth is in Jesus Christ. You want to fulfill life? The other thing we get is direction. He says this, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. Who are you trying to please in how you're living your life today? There's any number of people you can try to live to please. But there's only one that we have to stand before and give an account to when all of this is over with. And then success is defined as being fruitful in every good work here in our text. How, where do you want to be fruitful at? You want to be fruitful in the field that is going to just get you everything that you can have here for the time you live, but after that it's all gone like a vapor? Or do you want to be fruitful in the field that lays up treasure in heaven where moth and rust don't corrupt, where thieves can't break through and steal, like Scripture says? And then he says contentment will come. He says, man, you'll be strengthened with might and power and patience and joy. You find contentment there. Life with Christ at its center has balance and it has meaning and it has purpose. You know one of the most frustrating times of my life in ministry has been? And I struggle with this a lot. Is when I take my eyes off of the preeminent one and I start thinking, I find my purpose and my direction in what everybody's telling me they like and they don't like. And let me say this, I love you, church. I love you. But Baptists can complain like it's a professional sport. And here's the thing. One of the most frustrating seasons of my life is when I get bogged down and this person's not happy, that person's not happy, this group's not happy. They didn't want... Christ is preeminent. And when He is pleased, God is praised. 
And I say it with a little more, I'm just saying, I just, it's, it's just the way it is. It's kind of like, I was introduced this week to Asian carp fishing. Anybody know what that is? What Asian carp fishing is? Asian carp are these fish that are like, they will breach the water like all, like at night. When the sun goes down, they start breaching the water. That means they jump up out of the water. If you put a bunch of them in one place and you chum the water, they just start going nuts. So these dudes will go out that just have not found fulfillment in fishing old-fashioned style, just throwing a, throwing a rod and reel out there. No, they go out with bow and arrows at night. And when the fish jump up, they try to shoot them in the air with an arrow. That's how they do it. Y'all need to just get a PlayStation or an Xbox or something like that. You know? <laughs> Never been an advocate of video games, but these guys. So here's the so these guys will go out and, and they'll get in the fish and they're jumping and, and I watched a video of it. These people can't catch fish because the fish are literally jumping in front of their face and they're all over the place. This is what a lot of people are trying to do today. They're trying to find fulfillment in life and they're jumping at every, they're just trying to go off at every little thing thinking that's going to fulfill them. When the fulfillment in life is found all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, here's the fulfillment piece, God. And what Paul is saying here, you want to find fulfillment in your church, your marriage, your life, your, your job, just keep Christ the main thing. Keep him preeminent. Only Jesus will fulfill because only Christ is preeminent. All of those other things flying around are just going to confuse us. And so the application of that is we need to stop looking for everything else to give us meaning in life. We look for a lot of things to give us meaning in life. Our causes, our political involvement, our education, sex, money, marriage, church attendance and involvement. Listen, there's not, there's, some of those things are very noble things. But again, they're just things. Christ is preeminent. And then lastly, very quickly, as we move to our, to our invitation this morning. When Christ is preeminent, this is how it affects our church services particularly. This worship will get real. When Christ is preeminent, worship will get real. In Colossians 1, verse 12, he says, I give thanks unto the Father. Giving thanks is an attitude of praise, an attitude of adoration and worship, which has made us meet or made us, made us meet the requirements to be partakers of the inheritance. What is the inheritance? Salvation. What is the inheritance? Being part of the family of God. We were once spiritual orphans, but now we are children of the King of Kings. And he has delivered us from the power of darkness. And he has translated us or changed us into the kingdom of his dear son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Can somebody say amen to that? Amen. Man, this is just, you need to go home and just rest on this for the entire week. This is what we have in Christ, guys. And, and ladies, this is what we have. We have everything we need buttoned up into the person and into the work of Jesus Christ. You see, verses 12 through 14 carry this tone of appreciation and praise of Jesus. We see that phrase, giving thanks to the Father. What do you have to give thanks to today? Now, ask you a question. We move through the Ask yourself, what do I really have to give thanks to Christ for today? And then ask yourself this. Have I been doing my job of returning praise? Have I been doing my job of returning thanks to Him for His goodness? Have I seen evidence of the fact that I'm going to receive an inheritance being a child of God? Have I seen evidence of being delivered from the power of darkness? Is there evidence in my life that I have been changed? That I'm no longer a slave to sin, but I am a child of the King? Is there evidence of my life 
in that? Is there evidence of his redeeming work in my life? Is there evidence that I've been forgiven of sin? Do I honestly believe that? In church, you have to ask yourself this. Do we honestly believe that this is our claim in Jesus Christ? And if it is, then why, why, why is worship, true worship, so difficult? Why is it so difficult to have a smile on our face? Why is it so difficult to utter the words of the gospel to those in need? Why is it so hard? Why do we have to drum that up and put a reminder in our phone to read the Bible? Why do we have to do that? Because when Christ is preeminent, Christ becomes our goal. Christ becomes the target that we chase after. Christ becomes the measurement of everything that we say and do. You say, well, Pastor seems a little passionate today. I had espresso this morning. Forgive me. But seriously, if Christ is the main thing, then why do we make all the other stuff so stinking important? And I say that about my life. Because there's a lot of junk that I make too important. I'm standing before you today, Pastor Sandy. I've asked God for forgiveness. I rededicate myself to the preeminence of Christ Jesus in my life, in my home, in his church, in everything that I do. Because when I get to heaven, the only thing that's going to matter is Christ. See, because here's what this passage tells us. That God sees me as worthy. Look at it again. He's made me neat. He's made me qualified. That means he looked at me in my sin. And he knows I'm not worthy. But he said, I see you as worthy because I love you. He's given us much because he's made us partakers in the inheritance of Christ. He's rescued us. He's delivered us from the power of darkness. He's changed us. He's translated us into the kingdom of his son. He's redeemed us. We have redemption through his blood and he has forgiven us. He's given us the forgiveness of our sins. When we worship, when we come into this house, when we wake up in the morning, are these the thoughts that are crossing our mind and that are setting our hearts on the day ahead? I'm forgiven. I'm rescued. I'm redeemed. I'm his child. Not because of what I did, but because he allowed it to happen. And he made it a way for it to happen. That should fuel our worship. See, when Christ is preeminent in a church, the worship is sweet. And worship becomes a glimpse of heaven because worship is about and for Jesus. He becomes a lot of heaven. And I know this. I know this too. In a changing culture, music is the language of generations. I get that. And one of the great, one of the wars that the church always has always fought for the history of the church has been worship wars. What kind of songs are we going to sing? What songs are we going to sing? How are we going to sing? And people have preferences. Some of you are a little country. Some of you are a little rock and roll. Some of you are a little classical, some of you are a little jazz. And we can say, I, I like this, I like that, I like this, and it's true, we do. And we try our best to make sure we're trying to do a, a variety of, of things. But the truth is that worship is not about us. Worship is not even about a song. Worship is about the object. Jesus. There's an old song that... I wanted to kind of close by reading the lyrics this morning. It kind of reminds us that Jesus is going to be preeminent in heaven. He's going to be our one desire when we're in heaven. It's called, I bowed on my knees and cried holy. 
It's a song about this guy who dies, and the song goes, I dreamed of a city called glory. It was so bright and so fair. When I entered the gates, I cried holy. The angels, they all met me there. They carried me from mansion to mansion, and oh, the sights that I saw. But I said, I want to see Jesus, because he's the one who died for all. Angels were there, all kinds of stuff going on, but all he wanted to see when he got there was Christ. I entered the gates of that city. My loved ones all knew me well. They took me down the streets of heaven. Such scenes were too many to tell. I saw Abraham and Jacob and Isaac. I talked with Mark and Timothy. But then I said, Timothy, I just want to see Jesus because he's the one who died for me. And then I bowed on my knees and I cried, holy, holy, holy. I cried, holy. I clapped my hands and I sang glory. I sang glory to the Son of God. Christ is preeminent in heaven. That's a done deal. He's the darling of heaven. He is. He's the light of heaven. He's going to be the one we want to see. Folks, I just want to lay this before you, just like Paul, and say, he needs to be the one we want to worship here. And he needs to be the guiding light of our homes, of our lives, of everything that we say and do. When Christ is preeminent, we find our identity. When Christ is preeminent, we find power in the gospel. And when Christ is preeminent, we find that our worship gets real. And we find that our unity is sweet. Is Christ clean? With every head bowed and every eye closed. Is Christ preeminent in your life? Is He your source? Is He your supply? Is He your everything? Is He your God?